Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning, Kesset Church. It's really great to see you on this semi-holiday weekend. Um, but I was listening to the worship team practice this morning, and when I was standing in the back, I just got this real sense that today is just going to be a very powerful service. So I think you're in the right place. My name is Ronnie Sasaki, for those of you who are guests or just visiting today. And I'm one of the guest speakers here at Kesed. And every so often we let Danny go away and have some time with his family and time to recoup. And I know that everybody loves Danny's preaching, and so do I. And so normally you might be disappointed that he's not here, but I'm actually kind of excited that he's not here because... (laughs) It gives me a chance to be able to share with you today. We've been in a series throughout this entire summer. It's called The Quickening. And each of these symbols on the stage represent a different aspect of this concept that we say is the quickening. And today we're going to be talking about the shackles. I'm probably standing right in front of it here. The shackles that are lit up there. And I think along with the skull, which stands for death, The shackles, which stand for trials, are probably one of the the heaviest topics in this entire series. So I'm thinking, yay, this is going to be a lot of fun to deal with our trials today. I just can't wait to dive in. But I thought that it would be fitting if we just take another look at quickening and what the definition of it is, because I feel that it is actually very pertinent to this topic of our trials today. So we're going to put them up on the screen here. And I looked this up in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. And, and gave you a few of the lines that describe this experience. To make alive, as in revive. To cause to burn more intensely. To come to life. To enter into a phase of active growth and development. To shine more brightly. Now you're probably sitting there thinking, well, some of those might apply to the fireworks that we shot off on Thursday. But it seems almost like a contradiction when we try to apply this to the trials in our lives. And yet, I don't know any way to make some of these things come about than to go through a trial and then come out on the other side. But you may be thinking, well, what about me? I'm in the middle of a trial right now. That's really tough. How do I experience these things in the midst of it all? Because trials are difficult, and none of us would probably opt in to experience these things if we knew we were going to have to go through a trial in order to get there. I know I wouldn't. I don't like to be sad, hurt, uncomfortable, insecure. I mean, the list goes on, and you can think of many things that uh, apply to these trials that we have. And I feel like I've been preparing for this sermon my entire life. But even so, I will tell you that I don't fully feel qualified to teach on this subject. In a room this size, I know there are many of you that have gone through some things that are incredibly painful or still are going through these things. You're carrying a very heavy load. And I don't claim to be able to understand everything that you're going through or that you've been through, but I know that God does. And so I'm just asking this morning that he is the one that will speak to you And hopefully the words that he's given me are perhaps something that you came here today and needed to hear. So let's just take a moment and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us all here today. 
We're in the right place, ready and open for anything that you have for us. I pray that you will give me the words that you want me to say that somebody, maybe even only one person in this audience, needs to hear today. I ask that you bless this service as we continue on. In your holy name, amen. I dare say that almost every single one of us in this room have experienced this before. We're cruising along this nice, straight, open highway. Everything is going great. And all of a sudden, boom, right in front of us is this great, big, huge mountain. And we look at that mountain and go, whoa, I don't know if I can do this. We can't go under it. We can't go around it. We know we're going to have to go over it. And it looks really hard. It looks really scary. And I dare say it looks absolutely impossible. And I don't know what your situation is. Perhaps it was the day that the doctor gave you the bad news. Or maybe it was that time you picked up the, the ringing phone in the middle of the night. Or maybe it was the moment when you figured out that the one that you love doesn't love you anymore. Or for some of us, it could be that we lost everything financially and had to file bankruptcy. There's all kinds of things that put us in this place where we're looking up this mountain going, I don't think I can climb it, and I don't even want to try, but I know I've got to go up and over the top. It was that moment when it was as if the world just sort of stopped spinning. Have you ever felt that? You knew that life as it existed before that moment, was going to be different than life going forward. And it's an it's a incredible place to be. I think every one of us in this room could probably stand up here and share your story. For me, I have to tell you right now, I'm in a pretty good place in my life. I'm on that nice straight highway, just cruising along. Things are pretty good. My kids all moved out this year, and so I'm an empty nester. Just turned 55, and... Both my husband and I are relatively healthy and, and just kind of enjoying life. Everything is pretty good. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. But there was a day I remember when all this, I went away for lunch just to grab something to eat from my office. And when I pulled back into the parking lot, put the car in park, went to reach for the door handle, all of a sudden the door was yanked open. And my office assistant stood right next to me, filling the opening. And she says, Ronnie. You've got to go call your attorney. You've just been sued. Now, I didn't want to be sued, and I consider that to be sort of a bad thing in my life. I thought maybe she's just joking, but I didn't really think she would joke about that. So I somehow managed to stagger across the parking lot and get to my desk, and I picked up the phone, and I called my attorney, and he confirmed that, yes, I had indeed been sued. And I began a 10-year-long legal battle accused of doing something that I did not do. And for 10 years, I saw thousands and thousands of dollars go out the door as I paid attorneys to defend myself, to defend my companies, to defend my husband. It was a huge drain on me, both financially, spiritually, emotionally, in every way, shape, or form. And ultimately, we actually won this legal battle but the thing is, is I didn't really feel very victorious in the process. I actually felt sort of like I had been chewed up and then spit out. 
But see, oftentimes when we're going through these things, it's particularly these things that last for years. I mean, I love a good novel, don't you? You start the book and you find out the characters in the book and everything's going good and then all of a sudden in the middle of the book they have this big problem and the problem continues throughout the book until you get to the end and then all of a sudden in the last few pages everything is resolved and lo and behold things are actually better for our characters at the end than they were at the beginning. And I love that and obviously that doesn't describe every single book out there. But it does a lot of them, and between the front cover and the back cover and about 300 pages or so, everything is resolved, and all is good. I wish life were like that, but sometimes it just isn't. These things go on and on for years, and we become shackled to them. It's as if we're in a prison. And I'm going to offer three types of shackles to you today that we take on. These are things that we choose into because they're not usually part of the original trial. And these three shackles are blame, shame, and guilt. And I'll tell you, while I was in the midst of that lawsuit, I experienced those three things all at once, oftentimes, sometimes just one of them or sometimes just another of them. I felt like I was stuck in a prison, bound to this trial that I was in. And I wondered if I would ever be free from it. And perhaps you have felt the same way. You're on that mountainside hanging on, and you just wonder when it's going to end. Well, we're going to look at a woman who dealt with this in the Bible, but before that we do that, I thought that it would be good to take just a slight detour, because whenever we start talking about trials, oftentimes we hear, well, why do we go through trials in the first place? And I mentioned to you that I think I've been preparing this sermon my entire life, and when I was growing up and a, and a young person, I used to listen to this, this preacher named Dr. A. Leslie Parrott speak, and he wrote several books, and he often spoke on this topic, Why Good People Suffer. Now, I, I think it's really interesting. I love his teaching, and I want to give him the credit for sharing it with you today because it certainly was very impactful on my life. But his title, Why Good People Suffer, I stopped and thought about that this past week, kind of with a little bit of chuckle inside of me because I thought, well, how do you define a good person? And why is it that we think good people shouldn't suffer and perhaps we think what bad people should? I mean, just think about it for a moment. You find out that some sweet lady that you love has cancer and you say something like this, Oh, my goodness, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person. I mean, she's always baking brownies and cookies for all the Bible studies. She feeds all the stray cats in the neighborhood. I mean, of all the people, why is it that she is stuck with this? Haven't you heard this before? I mean, maybe the woman who never baked cookies or brownies for the Bible study should have got the cancer. That seems certainly more fair, doesn't it? I mean, look at our neighborhood. You have all this row of houses lined up. And they all have their mailboxes out in front. And all of a sudden, on a Friday night, a joyrider comes along with a baseball bat and begins to knock down the mailboxes. And at the end of the night, you look down the row, and the first mailbox that got smashed is guess who? The nicest person in the neighborhood. The one who lets the kids play in their yard, loves all the animals that go walking by, just the nicest neighbor, the easiest one to get along with. And guess whose mailbox is not smashed, not even scratched? It's the meanest guy in the neighborhood, right? The one that is so difficult to deal with. And you think, this would just be a really nice place if it weren't for that neighbor. 
And yet we think that it's just not fair that the nice neighbor got their mailbox smashed and not the mean neighbor. So it's really, really difficult for me to think, okay, why is it more fair for one versus the other? So I just decided to make a change to Dr. Parrott's title. And rather than say why good people suffer, I'm going to be all inclusive and say why all people suffer. Because the Bible is pretty clear about this. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So as we look at Dr. Parrott's reason as to why we all suffer, there are four of these reasons. And the first one is this. We experience pain when we break the inexorable laws of God. These laws were built both into the universe and into the human race. The laws are solid and immovable, and try as we might to sway the laws, they stand firm. So God has built into this world these universal laws. He's also put into the world spiritual laws. And an example of these universal laws is gravity. You know, it was discovered by Sir Isaac Newton, but it was created by God. And it is a universal law. And when we try to break the law, the law stands firm. Who gets broken? We do. If a person decides they want to test this law and they jump out of a window and splat on the ground, the law is not broken. The person is. Sometimes... I have to throw into this category these stupid things that we do as humans. Now, stupid is not a very tactful word, and Dr. Parrott probably would not have used it in his teaching. But I'm going to throw it in there because it seems applicable. Sometimes we make really dumb choices, and then we wonder, whoa, what's going on? How come I have to go through this? Well, because you just did something really dumb. <laughs> now, I've got an example of this. A couple weeks ago, my husband and I went on a road trip, and we decided to stop at Crater Lake because we had never been there. And as you might imagine by the title of the, the lake, it sits in a big crater. And the sides are very steep as they drop down to the lake, and I've been told it's one of the deepest lakes in the United States. And around the top of this lake is a trail where you can walk around it. So we are, it's the middle of June, and we're wearing shorts and sandals and summer clothing. The problem was is, is none of the not all of the snow had melted yet from the winter because they had quite a bit of it. So we're trucking along on the trail, and all of a sudden we would come to a huge mound of snow that was blocking the trail. Or if the snow had melted in that spot, there might be a, like a mini lake. So this, the, the water on the trail would be about six inches or so. And sometimes we could kind of skip over it and squeeze around it. But all of a sudden we came to this spot where there was really no way to go over it without getting my feet wet. And I didn't want to because I was wearing sandals. Well, separating the trail from the cliff that dropped down to the lake was a rock wall. And it stood about a foot and a half tall and about a foot and a half wide. And so we looked at that. Derek stepped up on it, and he grabbed my hand, and I stepped up on it, too. And we decided to walk along that wall and get around the snow and the water. Now, just that morning, we found out, a man had fallen over the edge and landed about 800 feet down as he slid down the bank. They had to bring a helicopter in to rescue him. Now, I can just see the headline, can't you? One-legged woman 
falls a thousand feet into the deepest lake in the United States because she didn't want to get her feet wet. <laughs> we're up in this wall and we're inching our way along and I'm looking down going, whoa, that's a long way. This is not a very smart thing to do. And sure enough, we heard this little kid who was over on the road holler at us and he says, hey, you guys, get off the wall. So I yelled back, hey, kid, don't you do this as if we were some kind of expert or something. Now, if you've ever heard me speak before, you know the only thing I really claim to be an expert at is falling. This is not a good skill to draw upon in these moments as we're inching along this wall. We made it, of course, but we do stupid things. And that was a stupid thing to do. And then we wonder later why we have pain in our lives. Well, God also built into this world, into us humans, these spiritual laws, laws that stand firm. And I'll name a few of them. And you think about all of the hurt that's been caused in this world because people break these laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. How about this one? Love your neighbor as yourself. One more. There's lots of them. But this one, forgive your brother who sins against you 70 times 7. You see, when we break these laws, the law is not broken. It stands firm. We are the ones who are broken. God knows exactly what we need in our lives. He knows exactly how we operate at our peak performance, peak efficiency, how to have this most abundant life. He created an owner's manual for us. It's called the Bible. And in it, it tells us exactly what works the best for us as humans on this planet. And yet what happens? Oftentimes we either don't read it or we don't follow it or we just choose to ignore it, walk the other way. So you see, the law is not broken but we are. So the second thing, second reason we go through trials is that we live in a constant state of interdependence on others. We're very social creatures. Our lives often connect with others, whether they're people that we know or people that we don't know, and oftentimes we can experience pain and suffering because of one of these people that we come in contact with. I could be walking down the sidewalk when you decide to test the law of gravity and jump out that window and you land on top of me. Now, I didn't do anything. I was just minding my own business and my only thing that I was guilty of was being at the wrong place at the wrong time. We see this a lot on the streets and the highways as we're out driving around when somebody will get in a very bad accident due to the behavior of another person. We are interdependent on each other. And this is also true for those that we love and those that we are in a relationship when they are going through suffering Oftentimes, we are going to take on that suffering ourselves. I know there's probably many in this room who are, are going through a very difficult time because somebody that you love is, is fighting a cancer battle, or per, perhaps somebody that you know is, is dealing with an addiction. It's often very difficult to put these things aside. And what about the pain that we experience when somebody we love has died? The hurt and the loss that we take on because of our love for that person. You see, we are interdependent on each other. The third reason that we go through trials is that in God's sovereign design, we live in a world of cause and effect. 
Now, a couple of really good examples of this is when a tornado sweeps through the city, it's going to knock down everything in its path. It's not going to pick and choose. When a river overflows its banks, it's going to take out everything that is along that river. When a fire begins to burn, as long as it's got fuel, it's going to keep on burning. This is the world of cause and effect. And finally, this is the catch-all. It covers everything else. So if your trials haven't fallen into the first three whys, it will definitely fall into this why. Pain is a part of this life. Wow. That is a big bummer, right? Sometimes I think we're so surprised when all of a sudden something happens that is difficult or painful for us to deal with. And yet the Bible is very clear. In John 16, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, he says that the troubles are a part of this life, but they're also a part of our maturity. They're a part of our growth. They're a part of this process that we go through. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Sometimes I think we get things mixed up a little bit with heaven, right? Because, you know, this whole idea of heaven is foundational to our Christian faith. We believe that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that when we die, we pass on to this place called heaven where there will be no sorrow and there will be no tears. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. But what about here on earth? When the old order is what we're entrenched in down here. And we are in the middle of stuff and we don't have answers and we're struggling and, and we're often at the end of ourselves. Well, there's, there's a woman in the Bible and we're going to take a look at her right now. And she has been right there. Perhaps where some of you are now perhaps where some of you have been. And this is the story about the woman who had an issue of bleeding. And we're going to read about it. It's, um, her story is in both the books of Luke and in Mark. I'm going to start out reading about her in the book of Mark. But I want to set the stage just a little bit first, as these first few verses do. There's actually a couple of trials or struggles, if you will, going on in this whole passage. And the first begins with this man named Jairus. He is a synagogue leader, probably very prominent in his community, and his daughter is dying. Now I just have to hit the pause button right there because some of you have lost a child. Now I haven't, but I cannot think of just anything that would be more difficult to go through than that. So my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to Jairus as I read this because his daughter is dying. But I want to take just a second to read between the lines a little bit. I'm going to interject some things that maybe are not in the scripture, so you have to forgive me for that, and I'll definitely try to be very clear. I get a sense from this and from this, some of the verses that follow about this man Jairus. He doesn't really have very strong faith. He is a desperate man 
willing to do just about anything to heal his daughter before she dies. And I, I, I picture this whole group of people, perhaps it's the same crowd that's gathered around Jesus, and they are people that have been supporting Jairus at his home as they're dealing with this sick child. So I'm going to go ahead and read now. It says, Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So Jesus has agreed to go into the man's house, lay hands on this child, and heal her. But again, I just sense that Jairus is just not so sure it's going to work, but he's going in and do it because he's a desperate man, and quite frankly, I would do the same thing if I were in his shoes. But then along comes this woman. I'm going to read on, verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, do you think that in those 12 years that this woman had been going through this, she may have experienced these shackles that we talked about at the beginning of blame, shame, and guilt? Let's take a closer look at her and see if any of these things can possibly, um, you can relate to them when you've been in those struggles that you've encountered. First of all, she suffered for 12 years. Now, I don't care who you are or what you've been through. 12 years is a long time time to be dealing with something that we don't want to deal with. you got to wonder that she was totally worn out, totally at the end of her rope, totally hopeless, and at a place where she'd heard about Jesus, and it was the only thing she knew left to do was to seek after him and touch him. She was an outcast from society, Perhaps she had traveled there from another city so that nobody would recognize her. If you understand anything about the customs that were present at that time, women who had a, a bleeding issue, a female-type bleeding issue, were considered unclean. And during that time, they were banned from normal society. And so this went on for 12 years. So you can see that she was very likely an outcast. And maybe at first people rallied around her and tried to pray with her, tried to console her, probably brought her casseroles as she's in her exile waiting for this issue to end. She must have thought, you know, this is just going to be a short thing. Perhaps it'll go away and I'll be able to get back to my regular life. But as it drug on year after year after year, she found herself quite alone, suffering quietly. 
all by herself. As one by one her friends began to drop off, the casseroles began to thin out. She'd used up everything in the freezer by then. And she was all alone in her suffering. She spent all the money that she had seeking a solution. Money seems to come into play in a lot of different issues. I know that most of us, when we have a struggle or a trial, we begin to spend money on it, hoping that it's going to solve the problem and fix the problem. And then we sort of end up with a whole new trial and a whole new tr struggle. And that is this whole financial issue. Because it's very easy to spend everything that we have, max out all of our credit cards, and think that this time it's going to work. This is the answer, and it will be so worth it. I don't care if I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, because as long as I can resolve this issue, then it will be worth it. You should have seen the checks I was writing when I was paying these attorneys for 10 years. My hand would shake. I spent every asset that we had to our name, and then some and more. It's a financial issue that oftentimes is attached to these other issues. She was, do you think she might have been jealous of other women? Now she's looking around and she sees other women who, they get their monthly time and then they get to go back home to their families and resume their normal lives and spend time with their spouses and their children and yet she never had that opportunity. Maybe you are in a relationship that is broken up and it's breaking your heart and you go to the mall and you see a man and a woman walking along holding hands. Do you ever stop and think, why can't that be me? Why am I all alone? How come I'm not in that relationship where these people love and care about each other still? It's very easy to look around us and compare our situation to others and become jealous of those that we think are better off than we are. Everything that could go wrong did. She went to find help, and instead of help, things just tended to turn to worse. She was taken advantage of by the people that she thought was going to help her and mistreated. And I know there's somebody in this room that has experienced that before. You think you have found the person that's going to be the answer, and all of a sudden you find out that they're just not right. They haven't helped. You've gone backwards in your entire situation. Do you think she ever resented the laws that banned her from society? Do you think she ever wondered why things couldn't change to be a little bit more comforting to women like her? Most of all the commentaries that I read say that the woman was not that old, but she was withered beyond her years because of this illness that she had endured for so long. She was at the end of herself, ready to surrender to anything that Jesus could do for her. So I want to take just a moment here and look at these shackles. It just feels the things that we are chained to feel very heavy. This whole idea of blame. We resent our pain and struggles, bearing our burden wearily with little hope for any change. It's often in this place of shame, this shackle, this thing that keeps us a prisoner to our, to our trials where we feel like a failure. Some of us even become embarrassed. Maybe we're not where we thought we should be in life. And we just begin to take on this whole role of of shame and feeling bad and we don't want everybody to know what we're going through because we don't want them to think less of us. We certainly, um, oftentimes, we don't want their pity and yet we're so wrapped up in our own pity. It's oftentimes hard to get past this. But you see, this woman must have felt that oftentimes. 
the shame. And I know that many of us have as well. Then there's blame, becoming bitter and revengeful, and blaming others, ourselves, and even God. This is a really dark place to be when we begin to blame all those around us. We take on this as if it was all my fault, and then we oftentimes will even plot revenge. If you think I'm on this stage, and then I've got this all figured out. Let me just tell you something. When I was in the midst of my lawsuit, I was driving around and I was crying out to God, could you please just destroy them? <laughs> it was hurricane season and they were on the East Coast. I go, I've got a great plan, God. Perhaps you can just bring in one of those hurricanes and just wipe them out. That would solve all my problems. And I've only heard God audibly speak to me a couple times in my life. And this was one of them, and this is what he said. Ronnie, I love them just as much as I love you. Well, could you at least smash their mailbox or something? <laughs> I had never in all of the time that I had been going through this stopped to look at my, these people that I perceived as my enemy, as children of God, and that he loved them also. And then there is the... Guilt, the big, old, heavy guilt. Even if it's not my fault, I may feel guilty about the load that my family is bearing because of what's happening. Feel these shackles that we are just chained to. So how do we break them free? How do we shift this all to bring on this quickening, this thing that we talked about at the very beginning, shining brighter, um, growing stronger, and creating this whole new experience in life? We want those things, right? So how do we shift all these shackles and get rid of them and turn it over to them? Instead of blame, I suggest today that we focus on God's bounty. See what he will do. The woman was ready to see what God would do. She believed in all of her heart that all she had to do was touch the hem of his garment and she was he she would be healed. She had an expectation. She had the belief. She was looking out for what God was going to do. And often in our circumstances, we want it to end. We have an idea of how the healing should look. And certainly in this story, God instantly healed her ailment. But healing looks a lot of different ways, and it doesn't always look like the way we think it should. But when we're in the midst of these times, instead of blame, I suggest we focus on what God is doing every step of the way and what he, how he is carrying out his will in our lives. We live in this constant state of belief and expectation for God. And then instead of guilt, focus on others and how they can become closer to God through our trial. We talk about this interdependence that we have and it applies in so many different ways. What if through your trial you're able to help somebody else become closer to God? I want to bring Jairus back into the story now because it didn't end. He's probably standing there while this whole thing takes place with the woman. And maybe inside he is seething, very impatient because this is taken away from getting Jesus to his daughter. You see, Jairus believed that Jesus had to lay hands on his daughter in order for her to be healed. And there's nothing wrong with that because Jesus did eventually lay his hands on the girl and actually raised her from the dead. I want to read to you Luke 
7, 6 through 7. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. Wrong verse. While Jesus was still speaking, somebody came from the house of Jairus. This is in Luke 8, 49. Somebody came from the house of Jairus, a synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. You see, one chapter earlier in the book of Luke, a Roman centurion had come to Jesus in a crowd in the same type of a setting asking for his servant to be healed. It was somebody they cared about deeply. And this Roman centurion didn't even have the same faith in God that the synagogue leader would have. And yet he believed that Jesus just had to say the word. Luke 7, 6 through 7 says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, let my servant be healed. And then Jesus says in verse Luke 7, verse 9, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You see, Jesus just had to say the word and the daughter would be healed. And do you think in the moments when Jairus was watching this woman, Jesus didn't lay hands on her? Jesus did not say the word? All she did was come up to him and touch the hem of his garment. And she was healed. Do you think that had an impact? I've always wondered why Jesus would make this public. I mean, she saw him in secret. She was an outcast woman. She wanted to kind of keep her anonymity. And yet Jesus called her out. Why did he do that? Well, because she brought all those other people along on this faith journey and improved their faith, including the synagogue leader named Jairus. Who are the people that are around you? in your life as you go through your own trial, that their faith, their walk with Christ is strengthened because of you and your situation. And finally, instead of shame, this third shackle, I suggest that we seek God as for a closer relationship with him, with ourselves. What does it take for some of us to draw closer to God? to seek him out at a deeper, more urgent level. Do you think that Jesus knew who in that crowd was seeking him out versus those who were just hanging out with him? And oftentimes when things are good in our lives, it's easy to just hang out with Jesus, right? Hey, things are great. I'm having such a good time. Hey, Jesus, you know, how's it going? This is fun. I love life. It's all good. Different than this person that's desperate for Jesus. I need you. I'm at the end of everything, and I need you more than anything. And we are pushing through the crowd, risking being humiliated, risking not being able to even get through. But this woman was determined. She solely pushed through, knowing that she just had to get to Jesus no matter what. A couple years ago, Derek and I went to Steamboat, Colorado, for a vacation in January, and on the day that we had to fly home, a blizzard had come through the area, and the roads were really bad, but we had to get to the airport, and I decided to drive because I like to be in control, and I feel very confident in my ability to drive in snow and ice, 
But it was, a, it was the drive took a couple hours longer than it should have just because of the conditions were so difficult to drive in. And things were going really well. It was very arduous and very tiring, but things were going pretty well. And then all of a sudden we got to this patch of freeway where the, the traffic all became completely backed up. And I looked way ahead and I saw this steep hill up, up there and about halfway up the hill, all the cars were sideways turn this every which way and I realized that there must be ice on that hill and because everybody's stopped they have no momentum going and when they get up there they begin to slide out and I got afraid we inched our way along in the traffic until finally we came to that spot where all the cars were sliding and sure enough we began to slide sideways almost instantly and I very calmly said I looked over at Derek and I said, help me! I don't want to do this anymore! I'm afraid! And he grabbed my head and he pushed it forward. He said, Ronnie, look straight ahead! Every time you turn your head, the car slides sideways. He goes, look straight ahead and then hit the gas. So I did what he said and I put my eyes right to the windshield and I hit that gas. And sure enough, I began to feel the car straighten out and pull up that hill. And every time I would inch my head a little bit, he would say, look ahead. Keep looking ahead. And we pulled up that hill and we finally crested the top and we reached the other side to safety. And I thought, what a beautiful example of how it is when we're hanging on the side of that mountain and we're scared and we don't think we can make it. We're tired. It's been a very long drive. And Jesus grabs our face and he turns it toward him and he says, look at me. Every time you turn your head to the side in shame, you slide sideways. Every time you turn your head to the side in guilt, the car begins to spin. Every time you go to shame, you begin to slide backwards. He says, look at me. And then we find that we begin to straighten out and inch our way up this hill. I don't want to go through trials any more than you do. I like life to be fun and easy. And it's just not sometimes. But along the way, we can release these shackles of shame, blame, and guilt. We can replace them with looking for what God is going to do in our situation. We can bring others along and strengthen their faith and their walk with Jesus. And then my favorite is we ourselves get to draw closer to him as we leave off all of the other distractions and look straight at Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a big subject, and I know there are people in here going through some very difficult times, Lord. I ask that you just touch their lives. Wrap your loving arms around them. Grab their faces and turn them directly towards you so that all other distractions fall away and they see you. And I just ask that you continue to give them strength and comfort in everything that everyone is going through in this room today. In your holy name, amen.